The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hi, everybody. It's Kathleen from the AI Today podcast. I recently sat on a panel at the Conference of Technology and Future Economy at Johns Hopkins University, and the panel was on blockchain and AI and how it can save the government billions of dollars. So the following recording is of the panel discussion at the conference. So please take a listen, and I hope you guys enjoy. I'm Jim Liu. I'm an assistant professor in finance here, and we have a treat for you right now. So we have gathered some of the top thought leaders in the DC area to discuss uh, blockchains and AIs. And these are people who are actually implementing these solutions day to day. So you're going to see and hear their experiences about how this technology is going to sort of, you know, revolutionize the way the government is run. And we have many different types of perspectives here. So, you know, without further ado, the way that we're going to do this is I'm going to allow each of the panelists to introduce themselves. And then we're going to sort of start on the big picture questions. And we're going to drill down to the micro and sort of understand the actual nitty gritty of this stuff, right? So we're just going to assume, you know, blockchains and AI. So we're not going to spend a lot of time defining these terms, okay? But with that said, we want this to be very educational. So I'm going to ask them if they get too technical to sort of back up and sort of, you know, make sure that everybody understands the terms that are being used, all right? So why don't we start at the very end over there? So my name is Jim Liu. I'm a professor here. I teach the Big Data Machine Learning course. We're going to offer the first blockchain course for Johns Hopkins Carey Business School in the fall. And I have a small machine learning AI company called SoCat. So we'll start with David. Uh, my name is David Martin, so everything I know about machine learning and blockchain I learned from Dr. Liu, so everything I get wrong, you can blame on him. I'm Vice President at Dovell Technologies. Uh, we're based here in Tyson's Corner in Rockville, Maryland. We do a lot of work with the National Institutes of Health on biomedical research. And I think I'm here today because we do a lot of work with federal grants. Uh, so we manage the largest federal grants management platform, which is called GrantSolutions.gov. You can go check it out. You may not know a lot about federal grants. Uh, I didn't until I got into it, but there's over $700 billion a year spent on investing in communities uh, through federal grants. There's a huge process that supports that. So uh, I started to get involved with AI, machine learning, and blockchain because we're trying to figure out how can we do that smarter? Uh, how do we track where the money goes? How do we measure return on investment? Uh, and those sorts of things. So I think that's, that's what I'm going to on. Hi, everybody. I'm Kathleen Walsh. I'm a senior analyst at Cognolytica, which is an AI-focused analyst and advisory firm. I'm also the host of the popular AI Today podcast, where we talk about all things related to artificial intelligence, and as well, have we have a lot of guest speakers on the subject. I've also been involved with the technology and entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem for a long time. I've run a lot of technology events, including investor events, as well as expos and demo events as well. And I'm excited to be on this panel. Also, um, Kathleen and Ron, Ron, stand up and raise your hand. They have this wonderful <laughs> podcast on uh, blockchains and AI that they'll provide the link afterwards if you're interested. Hi everyone, my name is Ray Melseed. I'm a UX UI designer in the data analytics space at Deloitte. But what I'm going to talk to you guys about today is actually what I do, what my night job is. Essentially what I do is educate people on blockchain through my DC blockchain meetup. We started off as just a small group of like 
200 members and now it's grown to about 2,800 members over the past two years. So it's been really exciting growth, especially with blockchain being the new buzzword. Before I joined Deloitte, I was actually the lead designer at a fintech blockchain startup. It's a really exciting time to kind of get into that space a little over a year ago. But yeah, right now I'm just focused on my education for the most part. Cool. My name is Jose Arrieta. I am the Associate Deputy Assistant Secretary for Acquisition of HHS, um, responsible for about $27 billion, $26 billion a year in contract expenditure across the U.S. and healthcare space. I think why Jim invited me is I did a POC with blockchain and a job that I had before that, basically using blockchain as a data layer, running machine learning, cognitive intelligence off the data layer. All the crypto guys in the room will actually probably disagree with me, but I actually think that's the model. I think crypto is just a fad that will go away because at some point you won't actually need currency. And I think that's the model to actually leverage this technology. And say that to make someone mad as well. <laughs> but I think that's the model to leverage this technology. And I'm actually doing an implementation at HHS. I've been at HHS for about three months. And I'm going to start one at HHS very soon. I'll talk a little bit about that. I learned about blockchain at the Department of Treasury. I worked for the Deputy Secretary. There is a strategic interest from a policy level in blockchain technology because it impacts a number of the structures that the United States manages as an entity globally. And that's where I first was exposed to blockchain and looking at blockchain more than a purveyor of currency and looking at it as a utility that can be used in other spaces. So Jose is, he doesn't really brag because he's a humble person, but of all the people in the government, all the people in the different agencies, he's the first person to ever implement a real blockchain solution that's in production right now. So the good, I always tell my students this, whenever you find a pioneer, chances are they're going to continue to pioneer sort of like Elon Musk, right? So we're going to see a lot more sort of innovation from Jose, I'm sure, going forward. So he used to work at GSA, now he's moved to HHS. So now he's going to talk about it. He's going to launch probably HHS's first blockchain solution, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we, uh, <laughs> I expect to have it done. For those of you that understand government, I expect to be have an authority to operate by September. So the proof that I built at GSA, which I left, I think that the HHS proof that we built will be in production before GSA decides how to scale. The proof <laughs> that we built there a few months ago. Why would they let you go? <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that. Like that. <laughs> you know, my name is Michael Novak. I've been uh, working with emerging technologies for approximately 20 years. Anybody remember Palm Pilots? <laughs> Don't laugh. He still uses them. <laughs> I do, but I call it the iPhone. It's the same thing, only different. But anyway, I've been working with emerging technologies for the last 20 years on handheld devices, embedded systems, in a variety of different industries. Most recently, for about the last 40 months, I've been involved in blockchain. I saw it as a new way to store that information, but then, as we all know, be able to distribute it and manage it more efficiently than what we currently have in place. And I'm also on uh, several groups here in Washington, D.C. with the uh, Smart Cities Group, the Government Blockchain Association, and the third leg of my stool is working with Voice AI, because I see all three of those, the voice and blockchain specifically, as being key to improving government. And these are not fantasies anymore. This is what we can do today, and hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit, but also then this.
Thank you very much, Michael. Okay, so we're going to just jump straight into this discussion because we might as well sort of talk about the U.S. So the U.S. collected $3.3 trillion. That's trillion dollars. I come from the hedge fund industry and a billion dollars is a lot. I never got to say trillion dollars until I sort of came to you know, the ivory tower. So $3.3 trillion in the fiscal year 2016. So I want to know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and you know, how much can we save the taxpayers? Are we talking about something that's 10%? Is it 20%, 30%, is it 50%? Or maybe this whole blockchains and AI is just another technology fad. And we're actually going to spend more money, you know, <laughs> we're not going to save anything, and we're going to go out and we're going to do all these projects and waste, you know, taxpayers' dollars, right? So I'm just kind of curious, you know, before I sort of, you know, say where I think that is, right, 10, 20, 30, 50%, I'm curious to hear sort of what your thoughts on, and, you know, how do you sort of think about that? How do you estimate that? And, you know, so what do you guys, anyone can jump in anytime. So from my perspective, I don't work with big government quite yet. And I do most of my work with the communities and the cities. And even if they can save 5 to 10%, that's huge. I mean, a trillion's a nice number. How many cities here have trillion-dollar budgets? A few, but the majority of them don't. So even saving that, you know, 5 to 10% can literally make their day, make their citizens very happy. So I see that really where we can make the difference. The earlier speaker talked about start at the top. That's absolutely true. You know, you've got to talk to the mayors, talk to the city councils, and educate them on what they can do with the technology. Is it a trend? Yes because all technologies by definition are evolving and are a trend. But we can't go back and say, oh, we're gonna forget that and go back to an old system. So I think we're on the right spot, on the right track. We just have to work with, what do they call it? Oh, yeah, the federal government <laughs> to get on board with this and let the communities and the states push this forward like they're doing in states. Arizona's doing it, Vermont's doing it, Wisconsin, Chicago, Delaware. Any other states you guys think they're doing this now to save money? Yeah, I mean, I let economists do estimates. I, quite frankly, don't care. The way that I look at it is, <laughs> seriously, right? So the way that I look at blockchain it, and the way that I started to learn about it, if you think about it, if you transfer money from the United States to Mexico, right? Bank of Mexico, Bank of the United States. There's always a third-party rationalization point, banking institution. That's about 40% of the total cost, right? especially with KYC rules. So... What blockchain allows you to actually do is to cut out that third piece of the stool, and you can lower your cost by 40%. So when I look at it, I look at it at the project level. I'll let an economist estimate what they're going to save, and I'll just give you guys a real-world example. In the implementation and the proof that I did at GSA, I took blockchain, I layered it over 22 different systems. I didn't functionally change any of those systems. I put blockchain over the top of them and let my aging, dying, old infrastructure, I'm not calling you old, <laughs> I let my aging, dying old I let it stay there. And then I used robotic processing automation, APIs, to actually rationalize data and bring it on chain. Right? We use Hyperledger Fabric, just so you guys get an example. Then what I did is I went one business process at a time, and I built machine learning and cognitive intelligence as a microservice off of my blockchain. I was able to actually look at an aging, dying system and use microservices to optimize that business process number one directly off the chain in real time. I could then could go and retire those aging systems. So once we actually proved that that model worked and we proved that it was functional, 
we said, okay, well, how much of the aging infrastructure can we retire? And what would be the time savings, right? Because I went from, and your UI UX designer will tell you this, I went from a process that was driven by system constraints. I have six applications piled on top of one another. If I add two decimal points to the sixth application out, I need to add two decimal points to all of the applications in between. I need to run IV and D on that entire network. I need to ensure that it works. That's extremely costly to do that. When I'm operating on a data layer, I just build a microservice for what I need. If I don't need that microservice anymore, I deconstruct it and I can build another microservice. I can open up my data layer to a user to build a microservice for whatever they need, right? This is a different way of thinking about blockchain than you know, just designing a cryptocurrency, designing Bitcoin, whatever. So conservative estimate, we cut out 90% of our OPEX for that business process that we tagged, 90% of our OPEX, and 90% of the time associated with evaluating a company and giving them a contract. So we thought we could take the time from 110 days to 10 days, um, and actually that was what I would say publicly, but behind the scenes I thought we could take it to a matter of hours, assuming that the negotiating, the pricing position that the company brought in was a reasonable pricing position I didn't have to negotiate. Yeah, we try to go from people to you can want to do this, but everybody on this table says, well, I want my stuff. Well, we did. So it's like, it, it's not like we wanted to do it. We actually, I can email you the proof and you can take a look at it. You know, there's no voiceover because we didn't have enough money to actually do the recording of the voiceover that explains what's going on. But I think if you watch it, you'll understand what we did. Now the pushback comes internally when you're looking at, when you go to your CIO and you say, look, I, you know, I don't think I need 90% of your support. You know, I mean, because I, I want to get off these legacy systems. It's business process driven. I'm going... Right? So it depends on the organization you work in, and you have to figure out how to manage that. We can get into that a little bit later, but I don't know what the macro number is. I just know that if you're focused on executing, you're looking at a specific business process, and you take that approach, there's significant savings. And you make life better for the user, because you're redesigning all the user interfaces on how they behave, not what they tell you they do. Because what you tell me you do it's very different than what you do when you sit down at your desk and you interact, and you interact with multiple systems. Yeah, I agree. Jumping in on that, I think that you know there is a cost savings and it's tremendous what it can be. But you do need adoption, and so you can't go and say, "Oh, well, I think I'm going to cut 90% of your workforce," because that doesn't always you know translate favorably. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about how artificial intelligence can take away jobs, and people are afraid of that. So you know you have to be mindful of that as well, because yeah, there could be a cost savings there. But you know what's the benefit and are people going to be on board with that? But I, I do see that there can be tremendous value in this. Let me just say one thing about, sorry, but the people, right? So people would say, what about my job? Yeah. First thing would say, can I click through the system? Well, no, because we automated it. You can check the data that was entered and you can check that the calculation at the output was correct, but there's nothing to click through. And then they would say, what about our jobs? I said, do you really like logging into 22 different systems? <laughs> do you like to do all of the copying and pasting you do to create one Word document that's required by federal law to do X? Because that's the piece of your job that I'm getting rid of. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's the key point. We talk a lot about cost reductions and how much money can we save, but the reality is the better focus may be on value delivered. How much can we increase the value delivered? So when you're filing your taxes, you know, okay, would it be better if the IRS was spending less money on overhead and those sorts of things? Yeah, but it might be even better if you can do it like that and there's no pain, there's no lag for you to get your refund and you know, all those sorts of things. Or you can find out the pain sooner. Yes, well, yeah. well, let's look at the positive. But I, and I mean that seriously as well as jokingly, if there's an error, I want to know about it now, not in four to six to 12 weeks when they finally send me the letter saying, oh, 
sorry, we meant to ask you for Form 12, not Form 15. You know, my perspective as well is from digital transformation, that big, huge strategy concept of how can we use current digital technologies to save time and money, make the customer experience better, and potentially come up with new, using AI, new business-driven, data-driven processes. That's the key. And I mean, it works for government, it works in the private sector. Okay, so it sounds like we might have consensus. <laughs> you see, I... That we could say using blockchains and AI on the order of 10% all the way up to potentially 90%, which is great. And, you know, the way I sort of think of AI, initially when I was teaching big data machine learning, I would put up the Terminator to scare the students. But now I'm thinking of putting up R2D2 and C3PO because, you know, this is the AI that's actually going to help, no. help us. Put up a refrigerator, your car, and put up just a plain wall. Because then, then the students will fall asleep. Well, yeah, <laughs> but you know they'll get used to it because I mean this is part of that capability that's happening. You know, the capability to embed the technology into common everyday things. That's where it's going. That's going to okay. be the AI that's more approachable, natural. Okay, so let's let, let's sort of dive a little bit further into where we think these cost savings can come from, right? So, you know, I think it's agreed that this technology will save us money, not only in the government, but also in businesses. But, you know, reducing expenses, increasing productivity sort of was discussed, right? Could you guys give a sense of where do you think the benefits will really come from? Is it going to be faster processing time for grants? I mean, we've talked about tax refunds. Maybe voter results. There are some elections that are held on the blockchains. No, um, they're not held on the blockchain. They're being audited. audited by the blockchain. Careful. Okay, fine. They're being audited by the blockchain. The other <laughs> thing is true. Okay. The, the other thing is, what about sharing data? So, for example, allowing uh, data to be shared in a, a very transparent way, right? So there are some, there there are a lot of initiatives in order to present this data that's collected by the government and uh, allow users and the public to have access. To, to that data, unfortunately, some of the data is in different tables all over the place, and there's not sort of this nice way to get the data together, right? So I'm just curious, you know, what do you guys think? Um, the other, you know, you, you mentioned before, Michael, about chatbots and how some um, agencies but are using voice enabling. Chatbot is like level one. Mm -hmm. Beyond that is again using, and I pulled this up not because I'm a real fan. We'll talk about that offline, but a device to. <laughs> get beyond chatbot. Right now, chatbot is high in a response to me, and that's really much all it can do. What we're trying to get to technically is the conversation. Oh yeah, I talked to you last week, and I remember this is your preference. Now you're asking me for something else. Let me use that cognitively, anybody from IBM here, that I can use that information, refer to it, and make it a conversation. So that's really key. So. Is it more on the processing side? Is it more on the servicing, the, um, the tax player side, or the customer side, or the, the citizen side? You know, where do you think the savings sort of ideally will come from across you know, the agency? Sure. So, I'm going on the So, where I see this happening, right now we're at a chatbot stage. I can go on to places like the uh, US Army site. They have a recruiting, recruiting chatbot. And uh, I can go in and type in, hi, I think I'm interested in becoming a gunnery sergeant, and it'll tell me everything I need to do to get into the Army and become a gunnery sergeant. Great. Customs, 
We have a chat bot that allows us to just inquire level one inquiries. So what that means is from a productivity perspective, I don't have real life personnel one to one for every conversation. I can be managing multiple conversations at once from a single desk. So that's more to the productivity and what they're able to handle. So I see that as being number one benefit. Well, I mean, this also, this takes away the, you know, answering silly questions. Like or what are your hours questions. of operation? Exactly. Or where can I find this yes. form? If yes. you can have a bot do that, or if you can have you know, a bot monitor and email system Absolutely. where it can go ahead and it can respond to this. And then, and it can respond to those simple questions where what's your hours of operation? Where can I find this form? You know, where can you direct me for this? Mm -hmm. And then if it becomes a, a question that needs to go to a human, then the email system can direct that email to the correct human. Sure. And now you don't need to, to manage and monitor this general inbox, which saves a ton of time. And it takes away that monotonous you know, following of that email inbox where it's important and you want to make sure that everybody's questions get answered, but now a human doesn't need to be doing this anymore. And to that point, the one thing I'd make a, a clarification on for people old enough to know the IVRs, the voice response system, press one for this, press two for that. Yeah. That is, that is so 2000s. No one wants to talk about that. What we're able to do now is much more dynamic because of that technology on the back end, the AI being able to go to the back end systems and say, let me collect this information to produce the answer to your query. So that's huge. The other part, besides it not being IVR, it's not your grandfather's IVR, is that capability of the AI to collect the statistics, go to big data and say, okay, yesterday, what were the top 10 questions about from a taxonomy? Where are those data components that I can mark and add takes to. So tomorrow, when Jose calls up and says, where are my taxes and when do I get my refund, I'm going to know the answer based on those predictive analytics that I put together the day before. So that's going to be yet another way we can save money as a government, save that time, and then also reskill people. You know, this would be part of the human capability, is we will have people that will be trained in this. You know, I went to school at a certain time, I learned certain stuff, I've learned since then because that's what we do as humans. We learn through communication, through verbal communication. We had to learn the old-fashioned way of machine. What's that keystroke? How do I do this? Because that's how the machines understood us. Now the machines are able to understand us better, so we can go back to talking normally and use them to our advantage. I think have been very forthcoming with providing their data, their information, and when you have an AI layer basically trying to understand this information, what the preferences for the users are, this will basically help understand where the inefficiencies are between the client and basically the service provider. So when you have AI basically embedded, so for example, there's an experiment that was conducted at AI in US. They asked two groups of people, one group to fill out a form and be completely honest about how they fill out this information, another group to basically misinform this form and basically identify, just lie about the name, address, or whatever it is. The AI basically picked up which traits, and it was something as simple as the cursor movement. It picked up that trait to know that how the person filling out this information is actually telling a lie. So instead of having some sort of forensic accounting or auditing on the back end, you have AI basically picking up these traits and identifying from a security standpoint who's uh, misinforming, who's filling out the false information, and you don't need people on the back end filling out or trying to figure out, okay, is this person lying? Is this person creating a fake account? Um, is this DDoS um, attack going to happen anytime soon? No, because humans, I mean, we are creatures of habit. 
machines, you just have to train your model to basically understand what's been going on, how do they behave, and then basically translate these findings into insights. And then once someone uh, is lying or creating any inefficiencies or clogging the pipeline, they'll just pick that up and then move on forward. And then that will create a seamless experience for the customers in general because they will know, okay, you're being honest, you're doing what you need to do, we know exactly what you want because of your behavior, we've learned it over time, we're going to deliver it immediately. So AI has a lot of potential in terms of like understanding and delivering really quickly, but when it comes to blockchain specifically, that's where information gets retained and information gets distributed. So what I did before joining Deloitte was uh, focusing on financial inclusion. And one thing we were trying to do is basically eliminate Western Union. I mean, what they do is plain robbery. I mean, it's really unfair that our, right? it's, I mean, it's capitalistic, sure, but. <laughs> it could be considered. It's, yeah, legal robbery. And I mean, there are people that make, you know, they want to send money to their family members, but then why should we pay like $80 for like a $1,000 transaction? That is insane. So, how do you basically use blockchain technology to eliminate the middleman? Use blockchain to disintermediate the middleman. And this disintermediation is basically getting rid of inefficiencies in the process and redesigning a process. But layering that with AI to understanding the human needs, their behavior, the patterns, that together would create a seamless, beautiful experience end to end. Do you think that's what you would go get rid of Western Union, or would they just come up with a new business model and say, hey, we'll create our own model blockchain based and still be there, but maybe make it open source or? Well, blockchain itself is distributed and decentralized, but then you have to rely on a central authority, i.e., Western Union, to basically send the money out for you, that's when people start to realize, like, why should I rely on just one source? When you have a distributed network, distributed members, um, when you have interoperating on blockchains, you don't have to rely on a single source. So they're going to struggle to basically keep up with these new companies and new startups that are actually trying to help people save as much money as possible. She's right. I mean, if Jeff Bezos went to the CEO of Sears and said, hey, I got an idea, do you think he would have funded it? Right? I mean, they, his model completely disrupts the business of Sears, right? So it's the same, and I talked about the remittance market as well, when I talked about the triangle sending money from the United States to Mexico, right? So could Western Union reorganize themselves in a manner to compete in that marketplace? Sure, but Western Union would have to work internally to disrupt the way that they've done business since Western Union was formed, whatever year that was. Yeah. Right, I mean, it's a it is a huge, huge cultural change. You know, the difference between if you work, if you are employed by a company, and you want to try something like this, if you have a centralized IT shop and you want to try blockchain, that's going to be a big uphill battle. But if the IT support is delivered at the program level, where the business owner owns the delivery of services or the collection of information or whatever the it is much easier to disrupt yourself because you're directly attached to a mission space, right? So these are you know, some of the cultural challenges that you face when you when you try to do something like that. Yeah, it structurates the way the organization works. Yeah, to me, that's one of the biggest changes for government. Is you know historically you have strong CIOs who are really focused on compliance, keeping the lights on, which is not generally an innovative. Uh, sort of focus and people that are in program areas, they're connected to the mission. 
And so it used to be it was really hard to build the tools that they needed in order to get their work done. So I always have to go through the CIO shop. I'm chief information officer. I'm going to give them a long list and a three-year project in order to get what they get done what they need to get done. When you have data that's more freely available, it's easier to plug things in. It means people that are working on cancer research uh, that are experts in their field can develop what they need uh, quickly, cheaply, uh, and without having to kind of go through all these extra steps. But that really threatens a hierarchy uh, that's existed for a long time. Uh, and I think that'll be really interesting to see how it kind of plays out over the next you know, five plus years. Um, and I'm sure you saw some of that at GSA. And when we put some of this in place where people say, wait a second, that's not how you're supposed to do this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, I'm going to sort of bring us back to blockchains here. And you know, I want to sort of discuss, and the essence of blockchain is that these nodes are holding copies of the data. And it's decentralized, as you, as you guys mentioned. But now, is this going to happen with the U.S. government? Are we going to have this data, our data, our maybe you know information about taxes, whatever the government collects on you in terms of information, social security numbers? Are we going to stick this information on a public blockchain? Is it going to be a private blockchain? Is it going to be something in between? How is this going to work out? And you know, sort of help me think about if I was running an agency and you said blockchains, and I said okay. But don't put our data out there all over the place. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to lose my job. So then, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the decentralization? And that's one of the core, you know, components of blockchain, right? And you know, how will, how will agencies think about it? How do we sort of, you know, implement this, right? And will we have one of the chains that's sitting outside of the public where people can just read only to see the information to be transparent? I mean, what are your thoughts on that aspect? Yeah, I mean, I so. First and foremost, in doing our proof of concept, government's in a very unique position to execute because we we make the rules, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we actually courts make the rules. We well, we write legislation that drives rules. Courts interpret those rules, and you know they may disagree or they may agree, but the rules are kind of made at the giant dome, wherever that is. So when you make the rules, you have to you are actually kind of setting the terms and conditions for how we're going to operate. And then when we did our implementation, it's very clear that we would use a permission blockchain. Right? So we could say, if you want to do business with us, this is the way that we're going to do business on the basis of regulation that's in place. Now, does that mean some regulation should that will have to change? Yes, but I'm not going to go and try to put something on a non-permission network when I haven't even figured out, and nobody has built a non-permissioned network in the entire public space. So I think that the initial implementations will be permissioned blockchains, where you take the fact that you set the rules and you use that as a way you construct how you're going to operate and, and interact with the public. You will learn to participate be part of it. Yeah, and, and remember that there is a you know, we, we aren't in a situation where we, most of government services, you're not in a situation where you don't know the counterparty, right? The people that I do business with, I do validation and verification checks directly from the IRS, directly from SAM.gov. I, I don't actually need SAM.gov anymore, but I can get the information directly from IRS, but there are ways that I can verify and validate that you exist, right? So I think that the starting point is understanding the difference between non-permission and permission-based blockchains and understanding that within a federal agency, you fundamentally control 
how you're going to do business, and it's driven by regulation, and, and policy drives how you implement that regulation. So it's a different approach to implementation than somebody that's creating a, a new cryptocurrency. And also, Dr. Blassel, what's your feeling, officially or unofficially, on the idea of exposing public data or personal data, like for HHS, would you put a... Well, I, I think I just said it. I mean, I'm going to start with... Would you be comfortable if you had your... I'm going to start with... Well, it doesn't matter what I'm comfortable with or what I'm not comfortable with. It matters what I can actually implement. Right, and what I can implement is a permission-based use of a distributed ledger technology, whether it's Hyperledger Fabric or Sawtooth, right? And I can take the lessons learned, and I can take the experience of showing that I can cut costs, and I can take the experience of, and no one asked this question, guys, but when we put our project in flight at GSA, we also put a critical thinking education-based project in place to redesign how the workforce would think, because they have 90% more time if we hit all our goals than they did before, right? So the question isn't what I think. The question is how I can get there, right? I mean, you cannot drive from here to my house as the crow flies. You actually have to follow kind of the rules of the road and all the stop signs and red lights. So you start with permission based. You show that you can add value. You show how you actually secure that network, right? And then maybe there's a time where you moved into a non-permissioned environment. But, but you, don't, you don't start with the theoretical, like, oh, we can recreate the world if we go here. You start with what you can tangibly have success with. And as a citizen, would you be comfortable having your SSM on exposed? I mean, all, all of my, I mean, put this way, all of my uh, data has already been stolen multiple times. <laughs> I, I mean, I was a part of the first, the second, and the third breaches at DHS. I got a letter from Equifax. There was another breach where 2.4 million out of like 2.4 million out of the couple billion pieces of information that were in a database, for some reason I was part of the 2.4 million. <laughs> so when, when people say to me, you know, and I see this all the time, oh, well, you could do that with a centralized system and it's safer. Really? I, I have free credit checks for life from all the time I've been there. So are you comfortable in the environment that you work in now? There's got to be a better way to do it, right? The, the philosophical discussion is gone here. The reality is in northeastern Pennsylvania, where I'm from, people are probably really uncomfortable. But knowing that my information, personal information, and my wife's personal information, and knowing that because of the feedback they give you that it's been to Russia, Rio, off of multiple, right? Yeah, I'm totally comfortable with it because it's already out there. And at this point... Everybody gives their phone number to just about every every service online at this point, and there's a better profile of who you are and what you're doing and what your interests are that you've already freely given. You know, to me, the whole social security thing is becoming, if I give you my phone number, you can find out more information about me quickly, and everybody has it. So I, I think it's a little bit, I agree with Jose, it's out there. And so how do you be smarter and more effective? And think about the flip side of this, guys. And you know, we always talk about systems and savings, but there's a humanity aspect to this, right? I mean, how many of you have visited an impoverished country, right? I've walked through an impoverished country, a very poor country, one of the poorest countries in this hemisphere, heard a kid scream, I have a young child, and literally walked over to see what was going on and someone had stolen his food. It's like a six-year-old kid. And they took away the food that someone gave him when they came out of the movie theater. And I, of course, asked him in Spanish, where's your mom, you know? He's homeless. It's a six-year-old homeless boy that's being raised by another homeless individual. 
with this, do you think that I have the ability to do ear scan, thumbprint scan, load this information onto a chain, connect it directly to some form of ID, really inexpensively, so that when he makes a few bucks washing cars, he may be able to open a bank account now? I mean, do you think that individual is worried about having his information someplace public? A bank account is, drives a ton of value for the two billion people that don't have identities. I've just outlined an easy way for you to get there. Right, so yeah, I mean, I'm concerned. My information's already everywhere. If you went and Google search me now, you could probably find it. And there's two billion people that have no identity. They can create no economic value in this world because they don't have an identity. We're talking about something that can actually fundamentally change that. Yeah, that's part of the self-sovereignty idea, being able to use the blockchain to identify myself to people without intermediaries. Have you guys heard of self-sovereign identity? Okay. Again, I don't know if that's a concept. So, so you know what's good about being in D.C.? Because I was just in Silicon Valley last week, and Silicon Valley is using uh, AI and machine learning in order to sell more products to the consumers, right? And so, you know, that's where all their energy, their top scientists is going, right? And one of the VCs was actually complaining. They're like, you know, we should be using this great technology to absolutely bank the unbanked and do some really good sort of, sort of social entrepreneurship type uh, things. And I know today we're going to see some more panel discussions about that. tech for good, maybe. <laughs> tech for good is always a good thing. Break that one down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what? Because we had talked about it for credit, for example, where your social security number is used for you to get a line of credit and for, you know, different transactions. So wouldn't it be nice if it was on the blockchain and you could see every transaction that's been done that you you would be able to, you know, verify it. Things there wouldn't be as much fraud in it. For, for educational purposes, not as a representative of the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah, you, you could do that. But like. Starting there will never work. And let me just be honest with you, starting there will never work. It's one thing to talk pie in the sky, it's another thing to actually implement. But saying, you know what, hmm. everybody, what, what is a group of people that we have actual oversight over? Well, it's everybody that works in a federal building and has a badge. Well, wouldn't it be great if we started to collect identity in those individuals and run security checks, leveraging ear scan, thumbprint scan, loading it to a blockchain, tagging it to the badge they already have, because we haven't changed the fact that they needed a badge because it's not a huge fundamental change. And using that as a form of identity for that group of individuals, right? How many federal employees are there? Six million? What if you piloted on, you know, uh, the million that work for DOD or the contractor community that supports the six million federal employees? And then you have a proof of concept that works. And then you say, well, maybe... You know, anybody that's newly born, we can create a digital identity on them. And, and you, you know, you build it out in segments. Because, yeah, I mean, is a social security number dead and gone and not usable anymore? Of course it is, but it's not going to happen. That's just going to be replaced. And I, I love the conversation. It's, what does the federal guy think of that? What do you think, what, what do you think about it? Because if you want to make change happen, if everybody in this room actually believes that they want to make change happen, don't sit there and say, what does the federal guy want to do about it? Write white papers in your schools on how this could change something. Be active in her meetup group in Washington, D.C. to push for change. The reason I could take a risk on my proof of concept 
It's because we had a government-wide working group on blockchain that was saying it was a really good idea. Now, of course, I spun the group up, and then anytime somebody shot at me, I said, talk to all 400 of them. experts. Talk to all 400 of them. This isn't me. There are 400 people that believe that we should go in this direction. Right? So you have to be a little bit more strategic, right? It's one thing to jump up and down and stomp your feet and say, like, I want a cookie before bed, mom. But it's another thing to say, I really missed you while you were at work today. <laughs> right? I mean, be somewhat strategic if you actually want to change. And that's, oh, that's the, the, in the private like, sector. It's the difference between leadership and talking. Okay. And I totally, I totally understand that perspective. As a professor, I like to put my professor hat on and say whatever I want to say. Then, you know, it's like, well, he's a professor. He's just crazy, right? So social security is a no-brainer for me. Put those numbers in the blockchain. What's the big deal, okay? But I, mean, I agree with you. I agree with you. But see, you're relative. Okay, so then what do we do? You have a... You have a that's then it's just an attribute, so I don't need... To put that on the blockchain. But then you don't. I, how do people carry their social security? How many people have social security cards, physical cards? I have it in my wallet, right? What, what happens when you lose it? Yeah. It's impossible. Right? Okay, so we, we you know, that, that one makes a lot of sense to me, but I understand the difficulties of going over and knocking on the social security, you know, you know, the administration's door and saying, oh, you know, you should put that in the budget. But I do like the fact that I'm a professor and students come and they graduate. And I could say, hey, do you want to put your quote, degree on Professor Lee's blockchain? Right. And you can affect change that way and so forth. So I totally you know, I like that sort of bootstrap uh, process. I'm going to switch gears here just because we're in Washington, D.C. And we can probably pick up a stone, but don't do this, and probably throw it to the White House if you wanted to. It's very that close. I want us to imagine that we are all sitting inside the White House. And we know the knowledge that we have about blockchains and machine learning and AI. And we truly want to save taxpayers money, right? Which agencies, what kind of policies, I mean, how should you know the leaders you know think about this? It doesn't have to be the US, it could be any sort of you know country, you know, in terms of the leadership. Which which places would you look at? It could be, you know, HUD. I can pick on HUD a little bit because Ben Carson from Johns Hopkins is there. But you know, which one of these agencies would you say, okay, this is the first one I'm gonna sort of lay down some policies for? And it could be, you know. NIH, I mean, you know, pick your favorite one that makes the most sense from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, the one that came to my mind right away was Medicare and Medicaid, how there's a lot of fraud and abuse going on. So if you could have that on the blockchain and you could have records in place that are immutable and trustworthy and verifiable, then, you know, you hope that you could have less fraud and less false claims going on. You know, they're doing that in the UK right now for pensions. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to show up at two different offices and claim your Michael Novak in both places. Right. So they're working with a private company to put that on a blockchain. So once you get your pension payment this month, you can't come back for another 30 days. And that's driven by the benefit you spoke of that such cost savings. Yeah. I mean, if you also, t if you take, you know, even go top down and start with maybe putting budgets online or on the blockchain, I mean, and that in order for people to spend and use that budget, they need it's it, that it's on the blockchain. Then automatically, it's going to be you know explainable. People, it's trackable. They get to see how the budgets are being used. Make sure that it's not fraudulent. Yeah, I mean that one I might disagree with because a budget is an estimate for a 
uh, regulate, uh, not a regulation. Well, but when you're given, when you're given it, that's not an estimate. I mean, that's actual money that you have. But just from a, a philosophical perspective, putting the budget on a blockchain wouldn't provide any additional benefit of putting it up on the web page that you can just read but not do anything with. There's no value intrinsic to that budget if I was able to go in and change that number from a million to two million. So what? So I, I think that Jim asked you guys an unfair question. <laughs> no, seriously. Why is your answer HHS? Hyper I, I really, I really think it's an unfair question because I don't think the question is what agency would you transform on blockchain? And the reason is, is just from doing this at a very low level, right? First proof of concept is I didn't like improve the existing business process. I looked at a business process and I was able to optimize that business process in a completely different way. So if you look at an agency, right, you're constrained by what's in that agency. And I think the second reason that the question is unfair is you have to understand the environment that you're in. You like... Where are you going to be able to allow people to take risks so that they can succeed in a bureaucracy with that risk so that they can get to the Medicare fraud data, which I think that's a wonderful suggestion, right? So that they can get to that point. I think that's the question that you have to ask. Right. Would, you, would you allow for some of these sort of pilot tests to go on, like a sandbox with these organizations? Yeah. Would that be a better but, but I think what I'm saying, and you, you're probably tracking where I'm going, is that focusing on operations that don't directly impact the public. Budget is a really good kind of example of that. It may, may not be a good example for blockchain, but a good example of something that doesn't directly impact the budget, right? That you can create a win, that you can learn about implementation, that you can kind of change culture internally where you have some very clear metrics, right? We know there's a ton of fraud. I don't know that we have clear metrics on how much there is. I think that is where you start versus an agency, right? There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And the federal government is so large and spends so much money compared to the $3 trillion number. When you make even small incremental improvements, it's at a massive scale. But if you can't do it and prove success, it, it just dies. And so, you know, disruption at the federal level doesn't happen at a massive, oh, Medicare is no longer doing these sorts of things. Uh, you know, it's overnight, you're doing something differently. It happens because you first solve the problem around uh, how long it takes them to get this from here to here. And then you found a way to reduce the number of staff that are needed from 10 to 5 in order to do those sorts of things. And then those people don't have to spend time on fraud prevention anymore. They can focus on, well, how much ROI did we generate? And then a career person who was overseeing that program gets promoted because all of a sudden they transformed within a year something that happened. And I said, you know what did that? That new blockchain thing actually really worked for me. And if you, if you don't do that, nothing happens. Uh, it, it does become the, the sexy thing that was really fun, and we all talked about it, uh, but it doesn't really implement. You have to solve a real problem uh, and show results in order for more money, attention, support to flow at it that lets you do it on a bigger scale. And at the state and local level, I mean, I take it down that level, we see that where we're doing things like asset management. Hey, I run my city, great. Where are my snow plows? We've got 20, you got to see, 2,000 of them. Where are they? In the warehouse? No, 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 we had a third of them that are out being serviced. We've got some that are broken, et cetera, et cetera. If I could track those assets on a blockchain, I would know where they're being used, when they're not being used, in-service, out-serviced. That would be the type of information where you could make that difference, you know, at that very, concrete level where citizens are like, yeah, my roads are clean. I don't care if it's blockchain, but guess what? I can drive on my roads now. I would personally start looking at every single agency's agency financial report 
this is my past audit life talking right now. I was an internal auditor at GSA, Ginny May, MCC, and all their findings were, oh, we accidentally lost X amount of taxpayer dollars to this, actually we can't account for that. And the whole time, I mean, I was at Ginny May post OIT audit, which was a really ugly audit, and the whole time I was just thinking, this is three years ago, we need blockchain right now. The Ginny May had the all need blockchain. GSA, we, I was part of the procurement, like, redesign um, group. I was like, blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. I mean, we kind of need me to it, so. But, yeah, so I would personally start with the financial report and look at all the findings, and you're going to see recurring themes. Like, okay, so we accidentally lost a, a certain amount of dollars. Why can't we just use blockchain to actually account for those dollars that are misplaced, misappropriated, or where frauds were committed? So. Oh. Yeah. Also, we're going to artificial intelligence back into this. If you yeah. have systems in place that can track this, too flag something, and then humans can look at that instead of having to audit and go through everything where certain transactions, certain things just really don't even need to be looked at, they're fine. Flag the things that are questionable, flag the things that need to be looked at, and now you can spend your time more efficiently. Auditors don't have to work eight hours a week. Think elegantly about how you deliver the totality of what was discussed here, right? Right, so API, the cloud environment, wrapped with a DLT layer, use robotic processing automation to rationalize and clean data as it comes in, tag it on your distributed ledger. Your intelligent system is front, don't forget. Yeah, maybe. Right, so yes, but, but and, and I'm just doing this to just remember that like these are like three separate technologies that we've talked about, but using them together is where the value is, right? So once your data is on your data layer, you use RPA to clean it up, maybe your chatbot, Put it on a data layer, not microservices on the back side to automate business processes and drive value, right? You're, you're taking everything that you've heard today and you're compiling it into one output. Blockchain's a facilitator. It's a technology that facilitates, it creates a lot of agility for you if you use it right. But in, if you use it with these other technologies in a microservices construct, wow, the ROI numbers go way up. And, and for those of you that are in school, like, don't forget that because the amount of creativity, the amount of things that you can do, if you start to be creative and think about using those technologies together, and the next billionaire will be somebody that that does that, that combines those technologies in that way and, and just beats Amazon to the punch because they can say, well, we can just suck in all your data, we can use our data, rationalize it, we can drive these business outcomes on the back end, and you can redesign your entire business process on our platform. Amazon kind of does that now. But it's not that elegant, right? They don't have that data layer. That's perfect. So thank you very much for all our panelists. This podcast is sponsored by Fiverr.com. Fiverr is a marketplace for creative and digital freelance services. And in fact, I use Fiverr for quite a lot of the things that we do here at Cognolytica and AI Today, including the editing of this podcast, the generation of transcripts, and more. I definitely encourage you to take a look at using Fiverr for your creative and digital needs today. And I have a special offer for you today. Use the promo code AI Today for 15% off your first purchase on Fiverr.com. Offer valid until December 31st, 2018. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group.
and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright 2018 by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.